Olivet Discourse. Today's lesson is part 10 of the Olivet Discourse. I want you to open up to Matthew 25. Our lesson is subtitled, Talents, Sheep, and Goats. That's a strange title, isn't it? Talents, Sheep, and Goats. I want you uh, in your books, you bring your books with you, don't you? If you look again, I've had you do this before, but if you'll uh, look at the outline that is at the beginning of your book on Roman number page 7 of V with two little eyes, I want you to see with your own eyes where we are. We've discussed the setting, obviously, way long ago, and we've discussed the subject of the Olivet Discourse, and we have been for many weeks now on the sermon itself, and today... We are in part E, which you can see is entitled Parabolic Admonishments for the End Times. We've already covered in the first lesson, we covered the Lord's prophetic announcement of Jerusalem's destruction. Remember, that's when we went to Luke 21, and he prophesied ahead of time about the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem. And then, for I think about five lessons, we looked at his part B panoramic account of the end times. That's when we learned all about the seven years of tribulation, the beginning of sorrows, the great tribulation, the abomination of desolation. Then we moved into part C, parabolic answer to the end time, which is when we looked at the parable of the budding fig tree. That was all we looked at in that section. And then last week we finished up part D, preparation admonishments or warnings for the end time. That's when we looked at the flood admonishment, the thief, the uh, evil servant, the sleeping porter, and the daily care admonishments, five admonishments. And now can you see part E? We're on parabolic, means parable, parable warnings, parabolic admonishments for the end times, which we started last week as we looked at the Lord's admonishments for the Jews. The second part is going to be his admonishments for the Gentiles. We, uh, in the parable of the ten virgins, which was spoken by Jesus for living Israel, those Jewish people worldwide who will be alive at the time of his second coming. After he returns, the first thing he will do, one of the very first things he will do, will be judge all the living Jews after they have been regathered to the land by that angel. Remember, the angel gathers all the living Jews together back to Israel, and the Lord Jesus will judge them. Um, And we looked at the need for inward salvation in the parable of the ten virgins, those who will enter in their bodies into the millennial kingdom to celebrate the wedding banquet that the king God will have for his son will be like the five wise virgins, those who will have oil in their vessel, meaning they will have been born again. Before the Lord's return, they will have been saved. Those who will be excluded from the kingdom will be like the foolish virgins who hadn't prepared ahead of time, and they had no oil in their vessel with which to fill, you know, fill their lamp so they could see their way to the banquet hall. That talked about, so that parable of the ten virgins talked about the need for inner salvation. Today we're going to look at the parable of the talents, that's where we'll start, and that speaks about the uh, need for outward service. So I just wanted you to look at the outline, you could see where we're going um, in today's lesson. After we finish the parable of the talents, we will move on to the Lord's admonishment 
for the Gentiles. After he judges living Israel, all the living Jews at, at the time of his second coming, he will then judge all the living Gentiles. And that is what is commonly called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. So let's begin now by looking at the parable of the talents. And this parable is found in Matthew 25. You know, Matthew 25 consists of nothing but three parables. Parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats. So we're going to look at the parable of the talents in which the Lord emphasizes the need for outward service. This isn't, you know, speaking of salvation by works. But works are evidence of what? True inward salvation. So he had the sequence right. You know, you need to be saved first, and then, and then your true salvation will manifest itself in your outward works. So the ten virgins parable speaks about true inward salvation, which is then manifested by what you do, your works which comes next with the talents parable. So the Lord, of course, had the sequence right. If he had had the talents parable before the virgins parable, it would have been wrong because it would have had works before salvation. But he has, of course, because he's God, he has the order right, first inward salvation, then manifested by outward works. So let's look at the need for outward service, verses 14 to 30. <clears throat> Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. Here we go again. How many parables spoke about someone going into a far, into a, in a far journey or a far country? That's because Jesus knew he was about to depart. But the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Who did the goods belong to? The master, right, the, the man who went into the far country. And unto one servant he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, which sounds weird, but basically that means an, according to his individual ability. And straightway took his journey. Then he, which means the servant that had received the five talents, went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Do you remember the other parable we discussed not too long ago when we were in Luke 19, which was the parable of the pounds? Remember when the man went off into a far country, he told his servants, after he had entrusted each of his ten servants with one pound, he said, occupy till I come, which means do business with what I have given you. And that's exactly kind of what this is saying here. You know, the, this, the one who had received the five talents, he traded with it. He occupied with it. And he made another five. He had received five talents, and he made another five. So he had a total of ten. And likewise, it says in verse 17, he that had received two talents, he also gained another, what, two. <clears throat> so both doubled what they had started with. But he that had received one talent went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, five talents. 
I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Now that's speaking of entering into the millennial kingdom. You know, we always take this verse out of context, don't we? And we say, you know, when we get to heaven, we want the Lord to say, well done and good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy. And maybe he does say that there too. But here in this context, he's speaking about, he's speaking to a Jewish person who genuinely showed their true inward salvation by working for the Lord in the meantime, in his absence. And he says, enter into the kingdom, which is the joy of the Lord, the earthly kingdom. All right, then verse 22 says, he also that had received two talents came and said, uh, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Remember, that's what the third servant said in the parable of the pounds. He said, I, I knew you were an austere man. And uh, here he says, a hard man reaping where thou hast not sown. Saying that to the Lord? Whose talents were they to begin with? The Lord's. He says, you, you reap where you haven't sown and you gather where you haven't strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. That is a, hmm, that's a terrible way to say, here's back what you gave me. <laughs> His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. You know, if, if you thought that about me, then thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers. And then at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. If you thought I was so hard and harsh and, and reaped where I hadn't sown, then why didn't you at least put my money in the bank and I could have had a little interest when I came back? He says, verse 28, Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think that third servant was a true servant of the Lord? No, because no true servant, no really born again person. Of course, this is speaking of a, a living Jewish person. This is not a save. This is like one of the foolish virgins. This guy is not truly saved because no saved person is ever thrown into the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Never, ever, ever. Well, in this parable, a certain man who symbolizes who? The Lord Jesus Christ was about to embark on a journey into a far country, but before doing so, he called to himself his servants and um, <clears throat> entrusted to each of them a certain amount of money according to his individual ability. A wealthy landowner, which is obviously what this man was, usually had a special servant whose function was that of an overseer. You know, he would be like the overseer of all of his master's household and property. He would manage his estate and his master's um, various business affairs. And while the master was absent, 
he would basically act as his power of attorney in his absence. Now, this particular master here, this man who took a far journey, he apparently was very wealthy because he had three such servants to whom he entrusted his goods in his, his absence. To one servant, he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to the third, he gave one. Now, the word for talent in the Greek simply means, it doesn't mean what you and I think it means, although part of that is in this. Um, we think of a talent as a, a, a natural ability that we have to do so, something, like, um, you know, you can jump rope really well or, or uh, you can run really fast or you can, you know, we always think of sing. I was trying to use something original because <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't sing. So, um, But some of us can, uh, what, name some other talents. Okay, well, those are like spiritual gifts. I was thinking like, yeah, cooking, sewing, you know, natural. Well, they might be trained. You might have been taught how to cook really well by your mother or something. But it's a natural thing. Yeah, okay. Well, those are natural talents. And that's what we think of when we hear the word. But in Greek, the word speaks of a, um, a measure of weight. It was a talent, it was a measure of weight. So the actual value of a talent would depend upon the metal content of the coins that were used. Now, we do know that this was money. So whether he gave them gold talents or whether he gave them silver talents or copper or bronze, that would determine the value of what he gave them. But even if he gave them copper, it's still all commentators say it was a large amount of money, a talent, no matter what the metal content. Now, if it was gold, it was like... You'd have to work 16 years or something to make that much. It was a, it was a lot of money. But, but what is important here is not really <clears throat> the value of the talent. That's not the issue in this parable. The Lord here is emphasizing common accountability for differing levels of responsibility based upon each individual's ability. There... I'm sure you've noticed there is an extremely wide range of individual abilities among people. <clears throat> Some of us can cook really, really well, and it is sort of a natural thing with you. You know, you'd, you could just put a dash of this and a dash of that, and you know exactly when it's, you taste it, and you know when it's perfect. Others of us, that doesn't come quite so naturally. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there looking at the recipe book, making sure I do everything exactly right, and even then sometimes it doesn't turn out like it's supposed to. Uh, but we all have an extremely wide range of abilities. We all vary in our natural abilities. Some of us are really good at basketball. Some of us can hardly kick a soccer ball, you know. Um, we have different intelligence levels. We have different IQ levels. We have different educational backgrounds. We come from different areas. We've had different family backgrounds, maybe different moral upbringings, uh, different opportunities and circumstances. You know, everybody is different. And the Lord assigns responsibilities to his servants accordingly, as did the landowner here in this parable. Aren't you glad that God does that and that we don't have to worry about all that? He's the one. He knows us, doesn't he? He created us. He knew us when we were before the foundation of the world, but he knew us when we were in our mother's womb. He knows all about our DNA. He knows what we're capable of doing for him. 
The main issue of the talents parable is what each servant did with the distributed responsibility that he was given, which is brought into view when the master did return. He was gone, it says, a long time. After a long time. And there I think the Lord was giving his disciples a hint. You know, those guys thought he was going to go and come right back. Well, they didn't even understand about the death yet. Somehow he keep talking about death, but... If he did die, they figured he was going to come right back and then they'd have the kingdom. But he's given them a hint here. After a long time, the master returned. And what did he do when he returned? Well, he called forth his servants to give him an account, a stewardship account of what they did with what he had given them. It's interesting to notice that although the first two servants did not produce equal profits, They did produce equal percentage of profits, five and five, two and two. That's they both produced 100 percent, right? They were equally faithful in their use of what had been entrusted to them, because each one doubled his master's money. In the same way, Christians may produce different results while serving the Lord with our different abilities and gifts. And yet each of us may work and should work, I mean, it's just our reasonable service, with equal faithfulness and devotion. You know, maybe one person hasn't had, like somebody in another country somewhere, hasn't had all the advantages that you and I have living in the United States of abundance, Uh, especially in the Bible Belt, where we have an an overabundance of access to to biblical materials and and good teaching. Uh, Just turn turn on BBN radio station. I mean, there's no excuse for people today not to be able to um, learn and study the Bible. And a lot of us have been privileged with um, many things, education and health and, and just the freedom that we have and we're more accountable than somebody in another third world country who maybe doesn't even have a copy of God's own word but if that if we do our what we can do um, for the Lord and produce if he gives us five and we produce five and that little guy over there has only been given one opportunity in his life you know maybe his fifth grade education or whatever you know you can make up all your own circumstances but he uses what he has to his full capacity and he doubles his we're both equal aren't we that's what i'm getting to <laughs> we're we're both we're both uh faithful and devoted and what is it required of a steward All that the Lord requires of a steward is that he be found faithful. Faithfulness is what he is looking for, faithfulness. So to the first two servants who had both doubled their talents, the master gave the same reward. He not only commended them with the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but he also entrusted them with greater administrational responsibilities when he said, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. He's talking there about the millennial kingdom. Do you think that in the millennial kingdom we're going to be sitting around twiddling our thumbs and, and just playing games? And No, we're going to be working. Of course, you and I are going to be uh, overseers because we'll be in our glorified bodies and we're going to be reigning with the Lord. 
But those who go into the millennial kingdom in their living bodies, such as these saved Jews represented by the first and second servant, they'll be rulers here on earth. They'll be given responsibilities based on what they did during the tribulation for the Lord. The first two servants had exercised their responsibilities faithfully during the master's absence, and therefore they were appointed to greater positions of responsibility in the administration of their master's affairs. Furthermore, they were invited to share in their master's joy. You know, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. What does that tell us? It tells us that the millennial kingdom is the Lord's joy. He can hardly wait for that literal kingdom here on earth where he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. It's part of the joy, I believe, that was set before him when he was on the cross. And he looked ahead not only to returning to be with his father in glory in heaven, but when he would again return to earth, Israel would finally know him. All Israel saved Israel. You know, it gets rid of the unsaved ones, of foolish virgins, and then all that's left is saved Israel. So Romans 11:26 can be true. All Israel shall be saved. He looks forward to that. That's the joy that is set before him. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. The millennial kingdom will be part of the Lord's rejoicing. And, uh, but then we come to the third servant. The third servant did not present his return master with his earnings. Rather, he was like the third servant who reported there were ten servants in the parable of the pounds, but only three gave a report because they were representative, I guess, of all ten. But that third servant in the parable of the pounds, um, just like this one, presented his master with two things, a pitiful, sorry excuse for why he hadn't done anything with what he was given, and an unjustified accusation. He had taken the talent entrusted to him, and what did this guy do with it? He buried it. He buried it in the ground, you know, where the dogs couldn't dig it up and find it in his backyard somewhere. He just dug a hole, and he buried the talent. The other guy hid it. He had wrapped it up in a napkin and uh, had hidden his pound away. Um, Both servants, in the talents and in the pounds parable, both servants when asked by their respective masters for their stewardship report, they responded by saying, Lord, uh, we knew that you're a hard man, an austere man, reaping where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't strawed, and we were afraid. We were afraid because you're so cold-hearted and callous and mean. And uh, so we went, and we, we hid your talent. And we wrapped up your pound, and, uh, and here, here it is back again. What you gave us, here it is. You can have it back. Now, in two very distinct ways, the third servant of the talent parable proved, just like the pound parable guy, that, that his identification with his master was not genuine. The first way that this final servant proved the superficial nature of his relationship with the master was that he obviously produced absolutely nothing with the one talent that he had been given. Um, You know, we can't really judge what's going on in a person's heart, can we? Only the Lord knows that if a person is truly saved. But one thing we can do is be fruit inspectors. We can judge them by their fruit 
And if somebody is producing absolutely nothing and is acting ashamed of, of, of the gospel and um, isn't using what God has blessed them with in their own lives, their talents, their education, their money, their uh, spiritual gift. Well, I guess they wouldn't have one if they truly aren't saved, but they're not using what the Lord has given them, life, <laughs> the next heartbeat for him. What does that tell us? If they don't enjoy fellowshipping with the brethren and they really want nothing to do with church, what does it tell us? I mean, that much is pretty obvious. As a fruit inspector, we'd say, well, I don't think there's really any root because there is no fruit. This guy didn't even make an attempt to multiply his master's goods. While he recognized his master as his legitimate master and even made a pretense of honoring him by calling him Lord, which in the Greek is kyria, it just means master or Lord, depending on how you use it. He just meant, meant it as master. Yet he made no attempt whatsoever to use what the master had given him for his master's benefit or profit. He totally disregarded the stewardship that he had been given. He didn't even invest it in his own life. You know, like the guy with the pound. Remember, we talked about the pound. Every one of the ten servants was given one pound. And we talked about that pound symbolizing what? Right, very good. The Bible or the gospel message. They were all entrusted with, you know, the one was ashamed of it. He kind of wrapped it up and hid it away. Didn't, didn't even invest it in his own life, much less much, much less others' lives. Um, and this guy didn't even use the talent to make a profit for himself, you know, a stock market or whatever. He didn't even try to make a profit for himself. He didn't even invest it in his own life. Well, he certainly didn't care about investing it in other people's lives or for the master, so he showed that he truly wasn't saved. The second way the third servant demonstrated his counterfeit allegiance to the master was in the dishonoring way that he spoke to his master. Can you imagine speaking to the master this way? He accused him directly of, of being a bad character, having a bad character. He accused his master of being a hard man, cold, callous, tough, self-centered man who, who, who reaped where he hadn't sown, gathered where he had not strawed. He uh, showed himself, symbolically speaking, to be an unbeliever by his wrong, terribly wrong assessment of the true character of the master. You know, many professing Christians, likewise, show their lack of faith by revealing their limited and erroneous ideas of God. How many people who say they were Christians really don't like to study the Old Testament because they say, ooh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so mean and cruel and bloody and uh, it just seems unfair and et cetera, et cetera. I've heard all this, and I've been in a church where I've heard all this, you know, from professing Christians. And then they pick and choose what they like in the New Testament. Um, and so they, they judge God wrong. They don't, they don't understand the true God. They, they, they see him, they see the God of the Bible because they don't really know Jesus Christ, so they don't really know God. They see the God of the Bible as sort of self-centered, you know, all he wants is the glory for himself. They see him as distant. They see him as apathetic, unjust, just like this servant, uh, untrustworthy, undependable, taking for himself what doesn't deserve to him, reaping what he hasn't sown. 
Um, they, they don't understand. They judge him. They judge God by way of their own perverted perceptions. They judge him based on their own deceitful hearts. They know how they are, and so that's what they pass along. You know, they transfer that, and that's how they judge God. And they say, well, God is just like me, really. Um, instead of judging God based on how God has revealed himself to us, which is through the words and works of his son. The God of the Old Testament is not a cold-hearted, cruel, bloodthirsty God. He is the same God of the New Testament. He is the same God revealed in Jesus Christ, the most selfless, compassionate, kind, but holy and just God there ever could be, the one and only true God. The reason he looks that way sometimes in the Old Testament is because they're just not understanding the heart of God. He does what he does because he's holy and because he is just, and he must judge sin and punish sin. But over and over again, he always, from Genesis to Revelation, gives men warnings and tells them, I will bless you if you obey me, but I'll have to curse you if you don't obey me. He didn't prepare hell for man. It is not his will that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he does all these things to try to get men's attention so that they will finally do what? Fall on their knees and and worship him and be saved. If you really want to see God, you need to look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, the third servant's estimation of his master's character was sufficient proof that he did not possess an intimate knowledge of him. The professing only believer is blind. He is spiritually blind to the Lord's kindness and the Lord's grace and mercy and compassion and holiness and love because he really just has never fully surrendered himself to the Lord's sovereignty over his life. And this servant, therefore, symbolizes the professing only believer who has a corrupt view of Christ because his own unregenerate heart is still corrupt. Therefore, in response to the servant's unjustified rationalization of his own unfaithfulness for why he had done nothing at all with the talent entrusted to him, the response of the master was, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not. You know, if, if you think that's how I am, that I, that I reap where I haven't sown and that I gather where I haven't strawed, then what's the least you should have done? The least you should have done is have taken my money to the exchangers, you know, to the bank, and then at my coming, I should have received my own with usury, with interest. And then he says to some other servants who are obviously standing around, he says, take from him that one talent that I had given to him and give it to who? The man who now has ten, the five I gave him and the five more that he earned. Give it to the one who already has an abundance because he's shown himself to be faithful. And um, then he goes on and says, for everyone that hath shall be given. In other words, you know, if, if you are really working for the Lord and redeeming your time wisely and being a good steward, you know what he's going to do? He's going to reward you with more opportunity to serve him. <laughs> more work to do. But that's, that's good. That's a blessing. And then he says, and he shall have abundance. Because in, in um, serving the Lord, what do you find? Joy and the abundant life. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. 
And then, what does he say? Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master called the servant wicked. And he never calls one of his own wicked. No matter how bad we might be, we're never called by the Lord wicked. Because he sees us clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But he calls this servant wicked because he had wrongly accused and dishonored him. And he called him lazy. That's what the word slothful means, doesn't it? Do you want to be called slothful by anybody, much less the Lord? I don't. Uh, but you know what? There's a lot of slothful Christians nowadays. But he called him lazy because he had done nothing with the talent entrusted to him. When the master repeated the servant's accusation there, when he says, you know, you, you thought, or thou, um, where is it? Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not. He wasn't admitting that he did that, that he, he reaped where he hadn't sown. He was saying, basically, if that's how you think I am, then the least you should have done is made me some interest. Since you think I'm such a hard man harvesting fields that don't belong to me, then, uh, and, and if you fear me, you know, if he, re- if he feared him, and he didn't fear him with the right kind of fear, with reverential fear. He says he feared him, he was afraid of him because he was such a hard, cold master. Then he's basically saying, the master is saying, then your fear of me alone should have caused you to do something with the talent I gave you. You know, if you really feared me, don't you think you would have gone out there and done something with that talent? You know, his excuse is just pathetic. It it's, it's, doesn't make sense, really. The story is very similar, as I've already mentioned, to the parable of the pounds back in Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. However, in the pounds parable, as I also mentioned, the distribution of the master to the servants before he departed on his long journey was an equal distribution. You and I are all given equal opportunity as far as this book is concerned, right? The pound. Uh, we, all have, we all have it on our lap. And we're all given uh, the equal gospel message. The gospel is the same. And, um, and, but their rewards were different. It was equal distribution, but the rewards were different. The dis- distribution, um, I'm sorry, the rewards were different. I can't remember what they were. The one who had been given one pound was given, I know, he multiplied it to 10, and then he was given 10 cities to rule over. Remember that? So that, that parable is based on equal distribution, but different rewards based on what we do with this pound, the word of God, the gospel message. This parable of the talents, the distribution is unequal because God gives to us unequal opportunities and, and talents and spiritual gifts. But... The reward is the same for those who were good stewards and used the money. I know that's confusing. But the stress was, uh, in the parable of the pounds, the stress was on equal opportunity. In the parable of the talents here, the stress is on individual responsibility with what we have been given. In both, now, the parable of the ten virgins, which was also a parable spoken primarily to living Jews at the time of the Lord's second coming, And in this now second parable of the talents, Christ is teaching that following his return, 
at the second coming and following the regathering of all the living Jews, the nation will undergo judgment. And this judgment will be a judgment to determine the truly saved Jews from the professing only Jews. In the virgin's parable, what was the positive end result for those who were truly saved, the wise virgins? Right, that they got to enter into the millennial kingdom. In the talents parable, the positive end result of the judgment for those who prove they truly were saved, the first and second servant, is responsibilities and privileges given in the millennial kingdom. Now, although there is obvi an obvious application to you and I, to Christians living in the church age in this parable, because I've thrown that in as I've been talking, there is definitely an application to you and I with this parable, and that's why we're studying it and talking about it, because it does apply to us in an indirect way, yet directly it is for uh, living Jews at the end of the um, tribulation when the Lord comes. But for you and I, we are to be faithfully using all that the Lord has given to us by way of our talents, our spiritual gifts. And he has given every one of us spiritual gifts, plural. Not just one gift, but spiritual gifts. And he expects us to be using them. He has given us physical and mental abilities. One day he is going to call us to account. What did you do with that pound I entrusted to you? How did you use it? How did you invest it in your own life? And how did you invest it in the lives of others? And then he's also going to ask, what did you do with all the gifts I gave to you? And the talents and the opportunities. You know, I allowed you the wonderful privilege of being born in the United States of America. I guess, were we all born? Or wherever you're born, you wound up here, didn't you, in the Bible Belt? That's a great opportunity. What did you do with it? What did you do with the talents and the, and the education and the wonderful family I might have put you in or whatever it was? What did you do with the DNA I gave to you? And we're going to give an account. So that's how this also applies to us. But during the tribulation, the Jewish people will, once again, as it was in the Old Testament days, they will be God's evangelists to the world. You know, that's what they were supposed to be doing in the Old Testament days. He gave... You know, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He uh, gave his, his word to the Jews. He spoke to the Jews through the prophets. He promised them, you know, from them would come the seed of the woman, the Savior. And they were to get that word out to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. But by the time of Christ, they had failed so miserably that they were so proud and so sectarian that they looked down their long, pious noses at all the Gentiles, didn't they? They didn't really care about sharing the true God. Well, they, the problem was most of them didn't know the true God themselves. So how could they share about him with the, with the Gentiles? So they failed in being the evangelists to the world. And now they're going to get a second opportunity during the tribulation because they will be God's primary evangelists to the world. Those 144,000 saved Jews will be like flaming apostle pauls and they'll go out into all the gentile worlds and they'll spread the word about the gospel message and the soon return of of the lord and then those who hear it are in turn to share it with others etc etc 
God will give them the responsibility in the tribulation of being his stewards. And just as in the talents parable, he will distribute responsibilities to each man according to his ability. You know, to those five wise virgins, he gave different responsibilities. I'm sure each one of those five virgins had different gifts and different talents, and he's when he comes back, he's going to ask them, what did you do with the talents and the gifts that I gave to you? And they're going to have to give an account. After the church is removed in the rapture, the Jews will be responsible for taking the message of the gospel and investing that message in the lives of others as opportunities open up before them. And it won't be easy, will it, because of all the persecution going on. That's why they're sealed. At least the 144,000 are sealed, or there would be no witnesses. They'd all be martyred. So what is in view in this parable is the service of the Jewish people at the Lord's return. The parable of the ten virgins, salvation was the emphasis. In the parable of the talents, service is the emphasis. In the virgins' parable, it was all about spiritual preparation before the Lord's coming. Make sure they're saved with oil in their vessel, right? In the talents parable, it's all about practical service before the Lord's coming. So we could say the virgin's parable is about vigilance, watching, watching, waiting for his coming, which the living Jews will need to be doing in the tribulation. Always vigilant, waiting and watching. The talents parable is all about diligence, working, all the time they're waiting. So one is watching, one is working. All right? It's simple. The two really go together. Some have even called this whole first section of um, Matthew with the virgin's parable and the talent's parable. They put them together as one parable. I don't see it that way. I see them as two distinct, but you could. They do complement one another because it is all about the judgment of living Israel. So some commentators have called it the parable of the virgins and the talents. So however you want to look at it um, doesn't really matter. And now we're going to get to the, the third parable, which is the parable of living Gentiles at the time of the Lord's second coming. And it is called the parable of the sheep and the goats. I guess he could have made that two parables too, right? Could have made the parable of the sheep and then a parable of the goats, but he put the two together. So let's uh, talk about it now. I'll read it in a minute, but as we have been studying for 10 lessons now, the Olivet Discourse, we have found that it has disclosed to us the chronology of end times events for the nation, primarily for the nation of Israel. The Davidic kingdom to be established by the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming is Israel's kingdom, long promised to her by God himself. You know, that's what Israel has always been promised, and that's what she has always looked forward to. I told you, you know, as the church, we look forward to the rapture. That's our blessed hope. Israel's blessed hope has always been the kingdom, the literal kingdom, where where her Messiah, she doesn't know yet that it's Jesus Christ, but where her Messiah will reign from David's throne there in Jerusalem, and she will be at the center of everything, Israel. That's been her blessed hope. She's been promised that over and over again. However... The Old Testament makes it equally clear that Gentiles will also have their part in the Messianic 1,000-year kingdom. Many of the Old Testament prophets 
predicted that blessings would come upon Gentiles when the Messiah establishes his kingdom here on earth. Um, Now, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, to which we now come, Jesus taught about the judgment at his second coming of living Gentiles. You know, the people who haven't died with all the horrible things that will be going on, all the judgments during the tribulation, those Gentiles who are still alive at his second coming will be judged. And this judgment rightfully will follow Israel's judgment. Because what is God's, what, what has his plan always been? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile or the Greek. And if he, had, if he had reversed these judgments, it would be out of whack. But isn't he always consistent? If he had judged the living Gentiles before the living Jews, we'd say, uh-oh, that doesn't sound like the God we know who always does everything first with Israel and then with the Gentiles. So it's to the Jew first. Actually, judgment begins where? At the house of God. So who are the first ones judged? You, you know, the church will be the first one judged at the Bema seat. Um, and that's what I want to talk about now. A common, a very common misconception, and I have found this to be true as I have walked my walk with the Lord and talked to many different people, but I have found that a very common misconception among many people, many people who even go to church all the time, is that things will continue along as they are until one day, and it's always, you know, in the far future, One day there's going to be this general resurrection of all the dead, and then there's going to be one last great judgment at the end of the world. And uh, God, the Father, will be the judge. And this, they think, is basically the judgment of the sheep and the goats. To those who are saved, they're the sheep, they'll go to heaven. The goats are unsaved, and they'll go to hell. Now, some of these people that you talk to don't really believe in hell. They don't believe in a literal hell. Um, so they don't even go that far. They just say, well, it'll all work out in the end. But there's going to be just this one general resurrection and one great judgment, and God the Father will be the judge. Have you ever heard that? That's a very, I mean, if you go out anywhere and talk to people, that's probably the, um, the, inter- the response you'll get. But that is not at all biblical. Number one, God the Father is not the judge. He has given all judgment over to the Son, If anybody's going to be sitting on that throne of judgment, it's Jesus Christ. We learned that in John chapter 5. All judgment has been given over to the Son. Um, The judgment will begin with the house of God, okay? We, after we are raptured, the church, saints, um, we are going to appear before Christ, not for, it's not going to be a judgment for salvation, is it? Because judgment for salvation was already taken care of at the cross, when Jesus died for our sins. But this is going to be a judgment for our works, just like we're talking about. What'd you do with the pound? What'd you do with the talents? And uh, some of our works will be burned up. Some of them won't be, and we'll have, you know, precious stones and and crowns to give back to Jesus. But judgment, that's the first judgment, will be of the church saints. Then the second judgment we've been talking about will be the judgment of living Israel. And then the third judgment will be the judgment of living Gentiles, which is also known as the judgment of the sheep and goats. And then after the millennial kingdom, what will there be? The great white throne judgment, which will be for all the other 
unsaved people from the beginning of time. All unsaved. No saved person will stand before the great white throne judgment. And even there, who will be seated on the throne? Jesus Christ. And every mouth will be stopped. No one will have an excuse. And he from me, I never knew. So you can see the idea of one judgment is totally unbiblical. Um, all right, now to break this uh, last parable, and by the way, this is not only the last parable of the Olivet Discourse, guess what? This is the last parable Jesus ever spoke. Now we still have another at least two years in our Life of Christ study, but he doesn't speak any more parables. This is the last one, which is interesting. Uh, we're going to break it down into looking at how he, first of all, commends the sheep and then condemns the goat. So let's read the passage, verses 31 to 40. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. What throne is that? Throne in heaven? No. He's coming back with his holy angels and he'll sit upon the earthly throne of his glory here on earth. And before him shall be gathered all nations. Now that word nations in Greek is ethnos, which means actually Gentiles. So it's not really a, a judgment of the nations. He's not going to call forward Iran and Iraq and the United States of America. He's going to call forth all Gentiles. You know, like you might ask somebody, what is your ethnicity? Like, my ethnicity is Greek. Yours might be Irish or German or Scott. So it's just, it's a, a word for Gentiles. This is the judgment of all Gentiles. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Because when he comes back and sits on the throne of David and is going to be judge, he is also, who? The good shepherd. And he will divide his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And again, this is speaking of the literal kingdom here on earth, not the kingdom up in heaven. Of course, that will follow, but this is all about the millennial kingdom. For I, he says in verse 35, For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous, this is the sheep, answer him, saying, they're going to be scratching their heads, and they're going to say, Lord, when saw we thee hungered? When did we see you hungry? And fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink. When, when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we, we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? They're going to be scratching their heads saying, we've never seen you before. This is the first time we've ever set our eyes on you. How could we have done all these things for you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren. Who are his brethren? Who do you think he's pointing to right then? No, he's talking to the sheep. The sheep. He's talking to the sheep. And he's saying, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. And, you know, you are the good sheep. You get to inherit the kingdom. 
because you have been, you know, in, in as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, he's pointing to Yeah, he's pointing to them, but he's they're the Jewish people. He's pointing to, for example, the five wise virgins. Who are the Lord's brethren? The Jews. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the Jews. You know, during the tribulation, to be kind to a Jewish person is like to put your own head on the platter. This has been taken out of context so many times in churches. Or, you know, this, somebody will say, well, you know, I, I visit the poor in the, in the prisons. And all that is good. There's always second applications. But the primary application to the, of this is he's speaking to Gentiles who have survived the tribulation. And first of all, he speaks to the sheep. And he says, because you did all these good things for my brethren, the Jews, it was like doing it to me. And it, that shows, you see, it's not a system of works. It's not that because they did those things, that means they're saved. Rather, because they did those things for the Jews shows that they believed the Jews' message. Remember, the Jews are going to be the evangelists. Because they were kind to the Jews, that shows that they believe their message, and um, their message is all about Jesus Christ. So to be kind to the Lord's Brethren, his evangelist, is the same as being kind to him. It shows true inward salvation. Because, you know, during the tribulation, there's not going to be any fence riding. You're either going to be for Christ or you're going to be for Antichrist. You either take the mark of the beast or you don't take the mark of the beast. These sheep will not have taken the mark of the beast um, because they'll be, they'll be saved, obviously. That's why they're called sheep. But showing how they're saved is that they were kind to the Jews. Just like, you know, when Hitler was slaughtering all the Jews during World War II and the Holocaust, who were about the only people that were protecting the Jews and taking some of them into their homes and hiding them? For example, Corey Ten Boom's family. The Christians. And why were they so kind to the Jews? Because they understood this book. They understood how important the Jewish people, whether they're saved or not saved. I mean, we are to be friends to Israel, even though Israel still is unsaved, isn't she, as a nation? But we love Israel because he loves her. He, she is the apple of his eye, and we know how important she is in his overall program and that she gave us basically most of this book. You know, this is written by Jewish pens, and we just understand how important the Jews are. And that gives evidence of their true salvation. So he says, because you did it unto them, you, it was like doing it unto me. So enter into the, uh, the joy of the Lord. He doesn't say that here, but he says, uh, come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he turns to those on his left hand who are the goats, unsaved Gentiles, and says, look at verse 41, <clears throat> depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels I told you earlier hell was not originally prepared for people but if people are willing if they want to if they choose to follow the devil and the fallen angels that's where they will follow him too is the lake of fire he says then he gives the reason for I was an hungered 
and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in naked, and you clothed me not sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him. Now, this is the goats. After they hear this, they also scratch their heads, and they say, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee? We never saw you before. How could we have done all these things for you? We didn't have an opportunity. Hmm. They did have opportunity, didn't they? In the tribulation, they will have opportunity to help Jewish people who will be persecuted terribly by the Antichrist and his forces. And they will be indifferent to them and they will show by their indifference to the Jewish people that they don't really know and love Jesus Christ. And he shall answer them, verse 45, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to who? To me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Uh, I want to close because of time here. We're right at right at time so i just want to close by saying uh, or taking notice of the very serious solemn fact that the things that will cause men and women and young people and jews and gentiles alike the things that will cause cause them to be lost for all of eternity to go into eternal separation from god and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and all that is love and all that is life and all that is blessing and all that is goodness. Those things are not big, terrible sins that they committed, but rather small, simple acts of kindness that they did not commit. For example, what we just saw here, you know, giving um, a, a, a cool drink of water to a Jewish person in the tribulation. It's not that the Gentile maybe went out and killed somebody. It's just that he didn't show kindness toward a Jewish person, right? Showing he really wasn't saved. The five foolish virgins were not shut out of the kingdom and then the eternal state because they were horrible sinners and morally wicked people. I mean, after all, they're even called virgins, which shows us that they didn't take the mark of the beast. They were actually saying they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They weren't morally bad, bad, wicked people. Of course, we're all sinners, but it wasn't some horrible sins that kept them out of the kingdom. Why were they shut out of, of not only the kingdom, but out of heaven for all of eternity? Because they simply were not prepared. They were not prepared for the returning bridegroom. You can go out in the world, and there's a lot of quote-unquote nice people out there. Sometimes, a lot of times, I meet people out in the world who I say are nicer than some of the Christians I've met. That's a terrible testimony on us, isn't it? But there's really a lot of nice people. But the sad thing is that they're not doing one thing to prepare for the future, are they? That's what will be that will shut them out of the kingdom and out of God's presence for eternity is that they didn't have any oil in their vessel. The slave with the one talent was not cast into outer darkness uh, where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth because he cheated his master of, of his money. 
He didn't go out and, and, like I said before, use that money just totally for himself and cheat his master. He didn't go and gamble it away. He wasn't some horrible criminal. Instead, he was cast into hell simply because he failed to invest that which his master had given to him. Same thing with people in the world. They're not investing what the Lord has given them, life, for him, are they? They're using it all up on themselves, but uh, they're not even thinking of preparing for the future or in investing for eternity. In the same way, an individual who is prevented from entering God's kingdom is not excluded because of the size or the extent of his sin. He is excluded or she is excluded for one main reason. And it all comes down to lack of faith. They just don't have faith. And all it takes is a mustard seed of faith. In who? Faith in general? No, faith in the right object, the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only unforgivable sin that there is. It is a lack, you know, to your dying breath that you do not, do not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what sends a person into the place that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, we're ending on time. So to God be the glory. Great things he hath done. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had together this morning. Uh, We know this is a very serious and a solemn way for the Lord to have ended the most prophetic discourse in all of the word of God. So, So we know how seriously we also should take heed of his warnings, even though, of course, they were primarily spoken for the benefit of end-time tribulation Jews and Gentiles. Yet, as always is true with your word, the same principles of warning apply to people of all ages. So I would pray, Father, that every one of us will come away from the study of the Olivet Discourse with an even firmer determination by your grace to never to never ever be content with merely a profession of our faith in Christ without putting that faith into practice. May we not only talk the talk, Father, but may we walk it daily before others. Let us continually be alert against do-nothing Christianity because the primary question at the end is not going to be based on what we said but on what we did. May we also come away, Father, from this study knowing better than ever before that the judge of all the earth will be found in the end to have done that which is right. The important question that we each need to ask ourselves now before our eternal fate is sealed, either by our death or by the Lord's return, is in whom do we place our faith? and our hope for our eternal future. If it is in anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, we are on the road to destruction, and we will find ourselves in the company of the five foolish virgins, that lazy, wicked servant, and the goats, all of whom will be shut out of your kingdom and the eternal state forever and ever. And so, Father, With all my heart, I pray that this will not be the situation for any one of us here in this room. May we all truly have been born again. And if in doubt, I pray that whoever it may be that does not know for sure she is saved, that she would take care of that matter this very day. For this is the day of salvation. Lord, we love you. I pray you go with every woman, 
help her to be salt and light this week and bring us back together next week to study the end of Tuesday of the Passion Week. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.